Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Mike Teasy, and I'm joined again today by Joe Hannity. Hey, Joe. Hey, Mike. It's good to be back with you. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a long time. Uh, we had, uh, actually, we had intentions of doing more of these uh, over the summer, and uh, the opposite thing uh, happened. <laughs> exactly. It's been a busy summer. Lots of things going on. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, understandable. But yeah, we're back at it, and I'm looking forward to consistently producing these again with you. Yeah, we're going to shoot for once every two weeks to be putting these out. So, And uh, just to stay consistent with that. Mm-hmm. That's a new goal. Well, today's episode is going to be a little bit different than normal. And uh, Joe, would you mind dis- discussing that a little bit? Yeah, um, we had taught a class on covenant theology. Um, took, I think, 12 weeks or so to do that, if I remember right. And uh, when we came to the, the 12th lesson on the new covenant uh, when we got done with the teaching and looked at the recording, it was... Uh, yeah, we had a little malfunction going on yeah. on the, the mixer. So it didn't record um, about 30 minutes of the lesson. Yeah, so. yeah. It's actually kind of amazing. We've been recording stuff since the beginning at Emmaus Christian Fellowship. I can only think of two instances where we've had trouble with that. One was on a sermon I preached on limited atonement. Uh, yeah. Which, oh, my gosh, you know, okay. Uh, I think we had said we were going to go back and re-record that. I don't know that we ever did. So there's just a, a manuscript there. Uh, and then here on the New Covenant, also a very important subject. Um, but I thought instead of, uh, y- you know, me recording this, pretending there was an audience there, and as if it were a class, we could just bring it into this format and uh, record it as a as a podcast. Um, it, it's going to be a little bit challenging, though, in that um, I think for those of you who are jumping in and listening to this as a podcast – uh, you don't have all the background, you know, of everything that we looked at in the Covenant the Theology 11. Clash, the the, uh, yeah. the other 11 lessons. So I'll use it as an opportunity to promote that um, that, that class to you. You can find it on our website at emmauscf.org backslash essentials. Uh, those 11 um, lessons are archived there. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. And also we're going to try our best to uh, produce this as kind of a standalone um, episode uh, to where we're not leaving everybody in the dust. But for those of you who... We're in the class. Uh, I do hope that this does effectively bring everything uh, to a conclusion um, in regard to the topic of of covenant theology. That's that's my hope. Maybe we're foolish for trying to do both things at once, but we'll do our best. Yeah, I think it'll be good because you're gonna. It's gonna be helpful for for those that were in the class to get a summary of what was taught anyway. But then it'll be, act as a good intro for those that were not. So let's jump into that with uh, with this question: What is covenant theology? Well, covenant theology is really a a study of um, the various covenants that we see recorded for us um, in the pages of Holy Scripture. Um, it's a consideration of the covenants that God has made, primarily with with man. Uh, I'll qualify that in just a moment, but primarily with man. Uh, throughout human history. Um, and so, so it's it's a look at the way that God has determined to relate to man um, throughout human history from from the creation onward. Now, I say primarily uh, these are covenants between God and man because really the first covenant you have to talk about uh, when you're talking about covenant theology is, is a covenant that was made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, between the, the members of the Trinity, often called the Pactum Salutis or the... Um, the Salvation Pact, the the Covenant of Redemption is sometimes a, a title that is given to that. But we're referring there to um, this agreement um, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to redeem the elect. And you might think upon hearing that, well, how do we know of such a thing if that happened before creation? Uh, and who, who was there to witness it and to tell us about it? Well, the answer to that is that God has revealed the existence of such a covenant um, uh, to us in the pages of Holy Scripture, probably the most famous place uh, that we see evidence of that covenant is in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, when he's um, praying to the Father and um, saying to the Father, listen, I've, I've done what you've asked me to do. I've kept all those that you've given to me, you know, and he prays for them and he makes reference to those given to him from before the foundation of the world. Uh, so we have there in the prayer of Jesus a glimpse into uh, the reality of this covenant that was made before before creation. Uh, we dealt with that early on in the class on covenant theology and then went on from there. Um, but it's a very important principle here that really everything we're talking about in terms of the covenants that have um, come to be in the history of the world, in the history of redemption, really flow out of 
that salvation pact, that pactum salutis uh, that was made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's important to begin there. But then, of course, we, we turn our attention uh, primarily to the covenants made between God and man. Obviously, God is the one who is taking the initiative in all of these. Uh, man has no right to uh, come to God and to approach God and to take the initiative and say, hey, let's enter into an agreement. But it's God taking the initiative and providing a way uh, for man to relate to him, to approach him. Um, you know, so without retelling uh, everything from the class, I guess I could just overview those really quickly. We, we, you start in the Garden of Eden before the fall, and you see there was an agreement made between God and Adam and Eve. There were certain terms and conditions. It was a covenant of works. It was the covenant of works. Adam and Eve were to not eat of a particular tree. They were to eat of another one. They were to do certain things in the garden there. Uh, they were offered eternal Sabbath rest as the reward. Uh, salvation, we might say. Actually, that's not the best word to use. But but um, uh, glory, let's use that term instead, was to be earned by them in uh in the garden, I say salvation isn't the best word to use because there was nothing to be saved from. There was no sin, but uh, they, they were in, to enter into that state of glory through the keeping of the law that God gave to them, uh, the particular precepts of not eating and eating and keeping the garden. Also, we believe that there was a law written on their hearts, which um, comes to uh, manifest itself in the Ten Commandments uh, later on in the history of redemption. But there it is. The first covenant is the covenant of works. Um, we know the story. Uh, Adam uh, fell. Adam broke that covenant. Uh, the, the, the curses of that covenant fell upon him and all of his posterity. Um, but the good news is there was uh, the gospel preached shortly after the fall. Genesis 3.15, there is this, this uh, word of hope, this promise made that uh, the serpent um, would be defeated uh, eventually uh, through the, the seed of the woman. So that's a very important moment. It, it doesn't appear to be a, a formal covenant at this point, but rather a promise, an announcement. Uh, the first announcement of, of the gospel is there in Genesis 3.15. From there, we could talk about the Noahic covenant. That is a covenant of common grace. It's not a, a redemptive covenant. No one is saved through the Noahic, but rather that provides room really for the rest of the history of redemption to unfold where God uh, shows mercy to all of humanity and says he will not... Um, uh, cover the earth again, you know, with water. Uh, so that's a covenant of common grace. But then we come to the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic and the Davidic and the New, uh, right? And and these covenants, um, the ones before the New Covenant, in our view, um, contain both uh, promises. They contain grace in them, grace is, to put it simply, embedded within them, uh, so that all who were ever saved were saved by grace through faith and the promises of God, you know, faith looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. But there are also terms and conditions um, contained within the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. Those terms and conditions have to do with the prosperity of the descendants of Abraham, uh, the prosperity of those living under Moses and, and, and in the days of David. Uh, and this is me putting it very simply. You need to go back and listen to the teachings on this for a more careful explanation of it all. But you're beginning to see just the general um, bent of covenant theology. It, its goal is to examine um, how it is that God has determined to relate to man. Uh, throughout human history, and what you see, it's it, it's that man always relates to God by way of the covenants that he has established with them. You know, there are terms, there are expectations, there are conditions, there are blessings and rewards, there are also curses and punishments associated with either the keeping or breaking of, of the covenants that God has made with, with man and uh, so that's a very quick overview, and of course, the most important thing to consider is the new covenant, which we consider to be the covenant of grace. And I guess we will come to that uh, in in due time. Yeah. Why is the study important and incredibly important to our Christian life? I really do believe this: that if you want to understand the message of the Bible, you have to understand covenant theology. It, it is the skeletal structure of of the Bible. Um, if you're reading through the Bible and and and, uh, and you don't 
have an awareness of the various covenants um, that um, were ratified throughout the history of redemption, you're going to be very confused from time to time. You'll be rolling along reading about Abraham and how he lived and how he worshipped, then you'll come to portions of Scripture having to do with the worship of God under Moses, and, and, and you're just going to go, what in the world is all of this? What is it for? You know, mm-hmm. what, what are all these laws concerning uh, Israel, their, their government? What are all these laws concerning the worship of God under the Mosaic Covenant. And then you come to the New Covenant, and it all changes again, you know, and all of that can be very disorienting and very dis, uh, uh, very confusing uh, f- for the, the student of the Bible, unless you understand that the reason these changes have occurred is because a, a New Covenant has been enforced, you know, a New Covenant has come in, into force. Uh, so I would say it's important for that purpose. Uh, it helps us to understand the overall message of Scripture it helps us to understand why some things change, but it also helps us to understand why there are some things that always stay the same. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to use maybe a little bit more of a theological jargon, it, it helps us to understand the continuity and the discontinuity that we see between um, especially the Old and New Testaments. Mm-hmm. You know, um, But it's also important, and it has practical importance, ramifications concerning how we view the Christian life today. Um, it, it actually will start to impact um, the way we answer questions like who should be baptized, you know, and uh, who is it that is a part of the church or who should be a part of the church. You know, it, it, I know it's hard if this is the first exposure you're having to covenant theology to understand why exactly it would impact those things, but it does. It's really one's view of, of covenant theology uh, that um, will lead to certain conclusions concerning the question who should be baptized and who is it that is a part of um, who is to be a part of the church under this new covenant under this new covenant age um, throughout throughout our study in covenant th- of covenant theology in that class I spent an awful lot of time, comparing Reformed Baptist covenant theology. That's that's the uh, model that we hold to. Um, and Reformed Pado-Baptist covenant theology. Now, Pado-Baptists believe in baptizing babies. Baptists believe in baptizing believers only and not the children of believers, only those who profess. Another way to say it is there are Reformed credo-baptists, credo meaning those who profess uh, faith and Reformed paedo-baptists that believe in infant baptism. I spend an awful lot of time comparing and contrasting the the covenant theologies of those two traditions. Um, And I think it was important that that I did that, and I tried to demonstrate how how we talk about covenant theology will eventually lead to differing conclusions about the issue of uh, of baptism. Right. Um, I wonder if I can make it clear in this one episode as to how that all comes to how that all comes to pass. I'm not sure, but um, let me give it a try. Okay, should I give it a try? Yeah, I'll give it a try. Do it. Um, well, the Reformed Pado Baptist. Okay. When they talk about covenant theology, when they talk about the various covenants, we've listed them already the covenant of works, uh, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and new, skipping over the Noahic because it's not redemptive, right? But when we talk about the various, when they talk about the various covenants, they, they want to say that everything after the fall, okay, is. The covenant of grace. There's actually a chart on an outline that I have in front of me here, and it'll be attached to this episode. It would probably be good for you to pull it up and look at it. But yeah, if you're not on the website listening to this, check out the website, and it'll be linked there for you. It's helpful. It's a good visual here. But they want to call everything after the fall, from Genesis three fifteen onward, the covenant of grace. They really see that and want to say that the covenant of grace began. It was. It was inaugurated, it was ratified at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? And here is how they talk about it. They, they, they would say that here is where the covenant of grace uh, formally began. Here is where it was instituted. And then when you come to the covenant made with Abraham, 
we, we begin to see God's dealing with Abraham in Genesis 12, and then it's significant in 15 and also 17. They say, well, there it is. That is the covenant of grace. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. But here's how they talk about it. They say it's under a particular administration. So in other words, in substance, it's the covenant of grace. That's what it is. But under Abraham, it's going to look, it's going to be administered externally a certain way. Hmm. Okay. You roll along a bit bit longer um, and you see that the descendants of Abraham go into captivity in Egypt and then they're brought out under this guy named Moses and a new covenant is is um, uh, enforced. It's it's brought into being the Mosaic covenant, and they, and they want to say some of them, many of them want to say that thing, the Mosaic covenant, is the covenant of grace, but under a different administration. It looks different on the surface. Actually, I think the OPC just went through a big thing recently, working hard to. Uh, um, define the Mosaic Covenant. Is it a covenant of grace or is it a covenant of works was a big debate for them. And you could see why it would be a big debate because if you've ever read about the institution of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, you're kind of left with the impression that the thing is a covenant of works, right? There was an awful lot of I will said to Abraham, I will, I will, I will, God saying to Abraham, I will, lots of promise, there are conditions too, but lots of promises made to Abraham, it seems to be a very gracious covenant. But then when you come to the Mosaic covenant, it's not really I will at all, but rather if then is the pattern. If you do this, then this will be the result. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then You'll be vomited out of the land. It really appears to be a covenant of works. I am not saying that it's the same thing as the covenant that was made with Adam and Eve in the garden. It is not the covenant of works, but when you look at it, it really appears to be a works-based covenant. But again, what I'm saying here is the paedo-baptists, those who believe in infant baptism, must call it the covenant of grace and insist that it is a different administration, a different external administration of... um, the covenant of grace. And then they'll come to the Davidic and say the same thing and to the new covenant and, of course, say the same thing. It is a, a new or different administration of the covenant of grace. And so what you end up with, and I'm looking at that chart, and I, I hope that you are too, is you have everything from the fall onward under the, the broad umbrella of the covenant of grace, you just have different administrations of it. And most broadly speaking, we could talk about the old covenant administration of the covenant of grace and the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. But what you end up here with is this notion that, well, under Abraham, okay, under Abraham, you had children born to Abraham who were not elect, who were not believing. They did not have a regenerate heart ever. Um, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. So to use that very famous example there, what you have is that you have both Jacob and Esau. Both of them are under the Abrahamic covenant. Both of them are rightly given the sign of the covenant, which then was circumcision. But what you have is one of them belonging internally to the covenant, being circumcised according to the heart, regenerate, of faith, you know, that is Jacob. Uh, But then you have the other only belonging to that covenant externally. So though Esau was circumcised according to the flesh, he was not circumcised according to the heart. He did not have faith, therefore he did not have salvation. But both of them were rightly under the Abrahamic covenant. And get this, the Paedo-Baptists would want to say they were a part of the covenant of grace, right? Both of them. Therefore, they were both given the sign of the covenant that they were under that administration of it, namely the Abrahamic and the sign of that being circumcision. Now, for them, they, they want to say that that same, very same principle applied under the days of Moses, right? That it was possible for one to be under the Mosaic covenant only externally and not inwardly. I would actually agree with that. Um, the same would be said under David, you know, in the days of David, Um and then the same would be said, here's the, the kicker, 
of the new covenant too because it is all the covenant of grace. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. For them, I'm, I'm just explaining the system here. I don't agree with it, but they're saying there, there has to be total continuity here. It has always been the case, they say, that it is possible to be only externally a part of the covenant of grace, but not inwardly. See, it's all the covenant of grace. It was that way during Adam's day and Abraham's day and Moses' day and David's day, and it's that way today under the new covenant because it is, after all, another and different administration of the covenant of grace. So today, children are born to believers. They're born into the covenant community. They are born into the covenant of grace. Some of them may only belong externally. Some may come to believe and have salvation and be inwardly regenerate and a part of the covenant of grace. But we are to give all of them baptism because... There's total continuity here. Under Abraham, all the children of the covenant people of the covenant community were to be given circumcision. There's perfect continuity. They, they were circumcised at eight days old then, were to baptize them as baptize them as babies now, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this concept is not in Scripture. I think it is a system that is foreign uh, to Scripture, and it, it, it's thrust upon the text of Scripture in order to justify the practice of infant baptism. I think it's backwards, uh, personally. Um, but that but that is their system. Now, if you were to put your eyes on the chart at the bottom, you would see that this chart represents the Reformed Baptist view of, of covenant theology. You'll notice there are some things that are the same, we believe in the covenant of works before the fall. We believe in the significance of the, the, the announcement of the gospel at Genesis 3.15. Uh, we also believe, and this is very important, that grace was present from Genesis 3.15 onward. Right. That's super important. Uh, how, how was Adam saved? And by the way, I do believe that both Adam and Eve had faith in the promise of God. I've grown to believe that more and more strongly over the years. But how were they saved? By keeping the law? Certainly not. They were believe, they were saved by grace through faith, just as we are today. We do believe that grace was present, but here is how we talk about it. We do not say that the covenant of grace was formally ratified or that it began at Genesis 3.15, but it was announced there for the first time. The gospel was proclaimed. Promises were made. That's how the New Testament consistently speaks of the grace that was present in the Old Testament, that that it was there in the form of promise. And if I'm making a promise, what am I doing except saying that the days are coming when I am going to do such and such a thing? Right. Right? So so promises are by their very essence forward-looking. And that is what we want to emphasize here, that grace was present, grace was revealed from Genesis 3.15 onward, but the substance of that grace was not present until the coming of, of Christ. In fact, the covenant of grace itself was not concluded or formally ratified or really fully present until the, 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 the coming of Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant itself. So here's the end result. Uh, The end result is this. Um, When we look at, for example, the Abrahamic covenant, we do not say the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. What we say is the Abrahamic covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. And when we look at the Mosaic, we say the Mosaic is the Mosaic, and the Davidic is is the Davidic. And the thing about these covenants are that they contain both promises concerning the coming of the Christ. Uh, they contain the gospel. They contain in, in differing ways, and I can't go over all of this. You'll have to go back and listen to previous episodes in this, but they, they contain the gospel there, but they are in substance something different than the covenant of grace. They are the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. They're different. They're unique, so that the end result is the new covenant is really new when it comes. It's not some 
old covenant that's been around from the beginning of time repackaged or administered differently externally. It, it's really, it's really new. And so under Abraham, it's true, you had people who were a part of the covenant externally but not inwardly. And under Moses, it's true that there were those a part of the Mosaic covenant who were a part of it externally only but not inwardly. But when you come to the new covenant, we see that one of the defining marks of it is that all who are in it know the Lord. This has a huge uh, huge impact upon who we will administer the sign of the covenant to. We do not say that you are in the covenant by virtue of your birth, by virtue of your genealogy. We say you are in the covenant by virtue of faith, the faith that you profess in in the Christ who has come. Um, I, I know that's very complicated, everything that I just said there, especially if you're just listening to this for the first time, but um, I'm trying to demonstrate why this teaching matters. It matters because it helps us to understand the overarching story of, of redemption, but it also matters in, in terms of how we approach these specific aspects of the Christian life, namely who do we give baptism to and how do we view uh, the church exactly. The illustration I began with in the class was this. I said, imagine that you had this old rusty car with 250,000 miles on it, you know, with an engine that was dying, with a transmission that was on its last leg, it's going out. And you take that car down to the best body shop in town and you spend a ton of money on a brand new paint job, you know, and they just do it up uh, just just right to where you're rolling down the street. That thing looks just perfect, right? Um, would it be right for you to roll up to your friends there standing on the side of the road and say, hey, guys, look it, I have a new car. It would not be completely honest, would it? You do not have a new car. You You have a better car than you had before. You have one that on the surface looks different. But really, what you have is the same old car. It is not new, but it, it has the same substance to it. Mm-hmm. it. It has the same the same guts to it, right? Um, and, and I think that illustration does match in some ways the Pado-Baptist version of covenant theology, that when they come to the new covenant, they cannot really say that it's new. What they must say is that it's the same old covenant, but better packaged differently. It's a different administration of it. But the Baptist version of covenant theology, when we come to the new covenant, we we we, uh, we, we rightly say this thing is, is brand spanking new. It, it, it has not existed before the time of Christ. It was formally ratified at Christ's first coming. It was inaugurated then. It was concluded then um, to where the new covenant is really new. Uh, everything that came before it was old. Grace was there, no doubt, Right, but it was not the covenant of grace. It was not the new covenant that was present in a formal, in a formal way. Did, does all of that make sense? Hey. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, it's important, important stuff. I think. By the way, <coughs> I don't want people to get the wrong impression, um, from what I'm saying right now, or by listening to that class. I, as I said before, I spent an awful lot of time. Um, really critiquing the Reformed Pado-Baptist version of covenant theology. But the spirit behind that, the reason I'm doing that is so that we might maintain good and solid relationships with our Reformed Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, They are Pado-Baptists, we are Credo-Baptists. But you'll notice that we have something in common. They are Reformed and we are reformed. Mm. <laughs> and if you compare our confessions of faith, you'll see that we have so much in common. In fact, I would say that if we have allies outside of the reformed baptist circles themselves, the, the strongest of them are with the reformed pado baptists. You know, we have so much in common with them. You compare our confessions, you'll see it's true. We we say um so many things um in the exact same way. Uh, so the reason I make the distinction between the two forms of covenant theology isn't to drive a wedge between uh, them and us, but instead it is to deal with this issue, to say we disagree here, but now that we've gotten that out of the way, you know, let's move on 
uh, arm in arm, hand in hand. Um, I really do think that dispensationalism, which is something I have not said much about either in the class or in this episode, is a much, much more serious error and misinterpretation of the overall uh, story of Scripture. The the way I would put it, if if you can put your eyes on that diagram again that I've been referencing, you'll notice that the Pado-Baptist chart is very heavy in regard to horizontal lines. And what I mean by that is it is the the, the the bold lines are running horizontally on this diagram, and what that indicates is they see a, a tremendous amount of continuity for them. It is all the covenant of grace, you know, from the fall onward. It, it, it's all uh, kind of the same, just different external administrations of it. I think it's a radical continuity that they present. Um, if there were to be a dispensational chart up here, there's not, but if we had one, it would be very uh, strong in regard to vertical lines. Very compartmentalized. Very right. compartmentalized. Dispensationalism really emphasizes the uniqueness of each dispensation, each period of time, so that God operated in a certain way from, let's say, Adam to Abraham, and then in a certain way from Abraham to Moses, and then in a certain way from you know, Moses to the coming of, uh, of the Christ, and, and things were just so different. I actually heard a dispensationalist preacher myself say there was no grace under the old covenant. Wow. Yeah. Th- think about the the, 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 the vertical. <laughs> uh, the vertical is 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 heavy. It, you know, there there's discontinuity according to the dis, the mm-hmm. dispensationalists. That's a helpful way, I guess, to remember it. There's a discontinuity according to the dispensationalism. Um, and just a little wordplay there, but um, I think it's very dangerous. The, the 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 horizontal aspect of it of it, it is just obliterated to where, in the extreme forms of it, this is an extreme form. Uh, the, the statements are made: there was no grace under the old covenant. That the idea is, I guess, that the people living under Moses were saved through law keeping. That's how it worked. In that time. But now that Christ has come, everything has changed. Now it's the grace principle. I mean, that is such a contradiction um, of uh, not not only the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament is so clear about this, that Abraham was justified by faith, right? Um, uh, the New Testament is clear about it, but even the Old Testament itself. I, I mean, yes, there were, were laws. Yes, this was a works-based covenant that Israel was under under the days of Moses, uh, that's all true, but it had to do with their prosperity and the remaining in the land. The, the grace was certainly there. It was there in that it continued on from the Abrahamic covenant. It continued on before that from the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, that stuff wasn't obliterated. But also under Moses, you have to see that redemption was taking place. These people were redeemed out of, Israel, out of Egypt. You know, God is doing something redemptive from the very start with Israel. And then also the laws, particularly the ones governing their worship, you see that Christ is everywhere pictured and portrayed under the Mosaic economy. You look at the Passover feast and how Christ is portrayed there. You look at the temple worship. I mean it's so complex, but in a beautiful way. Christ is painted forth in an incredibly vivid way under Moses. So yes, a covenant of works as it pertains to their prosperity and remaining in the land, but Christ was everywhere present under the Mosaic economy. Uh, it is not right to call it the covenant of grace, that is the new covenant, but grace was there in the form of promise. Grace was being uh, um, held forth in the form of types and shadows. Christ is the fullness of those things. He is the substance of those things. Um, But he was there so that everyone under Moses who was ever saved was saved by virtue of their faith in the Christ who from their vantage point was still yet to come, who they look forward to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, Dispensationalism is a very serious error in my view. Reformed Pado-Baptist covenant theology has errors in it. But in my opinion, when we're comparing their version of covenant theology with ours, we're comparing apples with apples. When we're comparing covenant theology with dispensationalism, we're comparing apples with oranges, you know. 
um, well, drastically affects your view of God, right? I mean, you can't possibly believe in an unchanging God and true, in, like in all truthfulness, if you believe in in dispensationalism being true. Sure, yeah. God, God is changing. Uh, salvation can work mm-hmm. in different ways. In fact, in the extreme forms of dispensationalism. Uh, you know, salvation was offered to the Jews and, and uh, at Christ's first coming, but the Jews rejected it, and so uh, the the kingdom will be offered. It was withdrawn, and it will be offered again someday. So you see here that uh, it is not God who is in control, but man in in, in that sense, and mm-hmm. it, it's just um, uh, very problematic, very inconsistent with the clear teaching of, of Scripture, I think. Um, so... In our view, it's the new covenant that is the covenant of grace. And in our view, the new covenant is really new in that it was not formally present before uh, the, the time of Christ and his words, this is the new covenant in my blood, you know, referring to the institution of the Lord's Supper there in the upper room on that night that he was betrayed. Um yeah, so I think it's clear in Scripture. The interesting thing is our understanding of the New Covenant and the significance or the substance of it really doesn't come from the New Testament. It comes from the Old. Mm. As the Old uh, spoke of days yet to come right. where this New Covenant would be um, brought to force, brought brought to being. Um, the most famous passage, and we could go other places, but the, the most famous passage is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And here, Jeremiah, who is um, a prophet ministering to the people of God um, under the old covenant, that is, under the Mosaic economy, he announces this good news to uh, the people who are rebellious and who are being judged by God because of the rebelliousness. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now notice this, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So, so here is a clear message concerning the substance of this new covenant um, from the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet in the days of the old covenant, looking forward to it. Notice a few things about it. It is a word of promise. It is a word of hope that is being declared to the people under the Mosaic economy, even though they're despairing because of their sin and they're being judged by God. Notice also that it is discontinuity that is emphasized. So here I think... We are to critique our Reformed Pado baptist brothers who want to make the old and the new to be substantially the same. They want to emphasize the continuity. Here, Jeremiah 31, 31 emphasizes the discontinuity. This is going to be a new covenant, um, and then stated negatively, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand mm-hmm. to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It, it's different, not the same. And, and in what ways is it different? Well, first of all, that covenant, the one made with Israel when they were brought out of Egypt, they broke. That was a covenant of works, and they broke it, right? The old covenant was breakable. Not so with the new. You cannot break the new covenant because the new covenant does not have terms and conditions attached to it. It is not if, then. It is I will. Right. It's pure gospel. It's grace. That it, that it does not mean that there is not obedience associated with the, the, the covenant, but the covenant itself is not founded upon or grounded upon our obedience. Um, actually, it's grounded upon the obedience of Christ, but that's another thing we'll get to in a minute, I think. So it's not if then, but it's I will. And really, this cannot be said of any other preceding redemptive covenant. What I mean by that is that 
though grace was present in the Abrahamic, there was an if-then principle given to Abraham concerning his descendants and their prosperity. Same thing with Moses. The grace was present. It was if-then. Um, uh, the, 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 the episode in Genesis 3.15, in our view, wasn't a covenant, but just a, a, a promise. Okay, um, this is unique. Uh, there is no if-then, but only I will. Um, it Which, isn't. Go ahead. In the, in the Pedro-Baptist, <clears throat> it is breakable, correct? It is breakable. So. In this sense, they, they do not teach that a person can lose their salvation. Right. But in the Pado baptist system, what they teach is that it is, pos- it is possible to be in the covenant and yet to walk away. And so for them, here is what apostasy is. Apostasy is if you are, a, if you are born into a covenant family and you've received baptism as an infant and then you grow up never to believe and you walk away from the church and away from the faith, now you are apostate because you were baptized into the covenant community. You were a part of the covenant of grace and now you have hmm. walked away from it. You are apostate. Um, we do believe that apostasy is possible under the new covenant, but it's it's a different thing. For us, apostasy is when someone makes a profession of faith, right? Right. Only to walk away from that profession of faith. But for us, it is that they were never of us, you know. that It's that 1 John 2.19 passage that um, applies here. They went out from us, John says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So I think this is the proper view, that a person who professes faith and then walks away, they are apostate. But it's not that they were ever a part of the covenant of grace or ever united to Christ by faith. It's not that they had salvation and then lost it. It's just this. They made a false profession. It looks to us like they were with us and then not, but in reality they were never with us. That's how John interprets that sort of uh, situation. This is such a great way to see the vast differences between these two uh, views. Sure. You can see that's really easy to notice these differences like right there. On the issue of yeah. apostasy, I agree. Um, it's interesting. The dispensationalists will read Jeremiah 31, and they will say, well, look, um, this new co- – this is you know, interesting. Th- this new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of must not be here yet. Because, look at what Jeremiah says. He says that this new covenant will be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So extreme forms of dispensationalists say, well, it was offered to Israel, but they rejected it. It was withdrawn, and now it will be offered again sometime when the new covenant will really come to focus again on the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I think what they miss is that the New Testament everywhere speaks of the fact that it is here. It it, it is present. Uh, Peter's preaching early on in Acts makes reference of Jeremiah 31. It, it just all over the place, there are these allusions to Jeremiah 31 that, hey, it is here in Christ. How are we to understand then the language of, I'm going to make this new covenant with the house of Israel and house of Judah? Well, it, it's it's simple. The house of Judah and the house of Israel, that language is referring to the covenant people of God. Right. And that's all over the New Testament too, explaining that difference. Sure. It's not just it, ethnically. In other words, my... I'm going to make this new covenant with my people. Right. And then what does the New Testament do? It picks up that principle and it emphasizes this, that it's no longer just Jew, but it's Jew and Gentile. And the Gentiles are grafted in mm-hmm. all who have faith into that olive, olive tree, you know? Uh, so, so that's how we're to understand this language, this language, house of Israel, house of Judah, as the original hearers would have listened to that. They would have understood this to mean that a new covenant's coming that is going to be made with, with the covenant people of God. Right. Um, and so it's that, that language that was familiar to them being used to describe something that was yet unknown to them. Um, but everywhere in the Old Testament, there are allusions to this fact that the Gentiles are going to be brought in. Even um, even back in the episode uh, where, where Noah um, sins and he's drunk and his sons act badly, you know, the curses are pronounced and blessings. There, there's the illusion there that the Gentiles are going to be brought into the tents of uh, of the the Jewish people and given shelter there, um, uh, Abraham himself was told, uh, you know, leave your father's house. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth 
shall shall be blessed. Um, just throughout, even under the Mosaic economy and what is said to David, there's promises concerning an everlasting kingdom and dominion, you know, one that is not just restricted to certain dynasties in this little sliver of land in Palestine, but it's going to be something that just far transcends all that. So we, we should be expecting from the Old Testament itself that when God finally does this new work and brings to fruition the promises made to the patriarchs that, that it's going to far exceed anything that uh, Old Covenant Israel itself actually I- experienced, right? So this new covenant is going to be made with the house of Israel and with the house of, of Judah. That has happened in uh, the first coming of Christ with the ingrafting of the Gentiles into um, the, the covenant community. But here we are told... Um, that God is going to put his law within their hearts and within them and write it on their hearts. Mm. This is not entirely new if we consider it by itself. If you read uh, the Psalms, you'll recognize that David uh, loved God's law from, from the heart uh, if you read the New Testament, the way that it speaks of Old Testament saints, that there were some who were circumcised of, of the heart. So this is language that should make us think of regeneration. I do believe that Old Testament saints were regenerated if they had faith in, in Christ. The Spirit was at work there. So considered by itself, this is not entirely new. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This also is not entirely new considered by itself. Um. Certainly, there were some of ethnic Israel under the Old Covenant who did not really belong to God. But there was always a remnant Mm -hmm. who were really God's people, right? Um, Now, also, the text says, "...and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord." This is brand spanking new. Okay, so picture this: you have you have Israel in the days of Jeremiah when this was first written. Um, no longer walking faith with the Lord. I mean, it just faithlessness is dominating the day, right? And here you have Jeremiah, and he's ministering to the covenant people of God. They're all under the Mosaic covenant, right? And what is his whole ministry except warning them of the judgment to come? And he's going to his brothers and sisters, uh, fellow covenant people. And he's in his whole ministry is saying to them, know the Lord. In other words, you're under Moses. You belong externally to the people of God, but you don't even know God. You're not walking walking after his ways. You're not trusting in his promises. You're 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 rebellious to the core. Know the Lord. And um, what Jeremiah is saying is that the day is coming when that's no longer going to happen. Um, where one person who is a member of the covenant is going to say to another person who is a member of the covenant, "Know the Lord." That day is going to pass away. Uh, why? Well, the next line clar- clarifies why. Um, For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord this is the this is the really new thing about the new covenant under the old covenant there was a mixture jacob i have loved esau i have hated so external or internal, internal. elect non-elect regenerate non-regenerate but both a part of the covenant both of Abraham and in some instances, you know, later on, both under Moses, both rightly circumcised. But theoretically, Jacob could look at Esau and say, Esau, my circumcised brother of the covenant, know the Lord. And what Jeremiah is saying is the day is coming when no longer will there be teachers who who do that, who, who look at another member of the covenant and say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is why um, th- this is why infant baptism is, is, is just – remember, I'm trying to build bridges here, so I have to not speak too harshly, right? <laughs> what infant baptism does is it absolutely 
continues and promotes this idea that there is this external and internal component to the new yeah. covenant. Uh, it, it, it perpetuates, it, it, it insists that this um, scenario that Jeremiah was experiencing in the days that he was prophesying, that it, it just insists that it continues. You have people given the sign of the covenant who are called covenant members, and yet they do not have faith. It has to be that that one says to another under the new covenant, according to their system, know the Lord. Right. Have faith, repent. Right. Um, but it's in contradiction to what uh, the scriptures say the, the new covenant is going to be all about. I've heard Pado Baptist say, well, see, um, this is speaking of a day yet future. So ironically, they do the same thing that the dispensationalists do, but for a different reason. They delay the fullness of the coming of the new covenant. This is this must be speaking of things yet future because, see, it says that no longer will there be teachers, and we still have teachers. But that's not what the text mm-hmm. says. No longer will – what's the wording here? Uh, no, no longer – Will um, shall each one teach shall, e- shall each one teach his neighbor saying, "Know the Lord." It's not that there right. won't be teachers, but it's that this won't be a topic of conversation. Trying to convert covenant members in, into belief. Uh, why? Because if you're in the covenant, it's because you already believe, and you believe because you're a covenant member. You're you're, you're one of the the elect of, of God. Um, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Uh, this is the new thing concerning the new covenant. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So this is what it means to be in the new covenant. It's to have your, your iniquity covered, your sins remembered no more. But according to the Pado baptist model, you have children who are members of the covenant who do not have their sins forgiven because they do not believe. Um, they would admit that. They do not believe in, like the Roman Catholics do, that right, baptism, baptism in any way confers right. grace automatically or washes away sin. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a very problematic thing here, ultimately. Um, not not as severe as the dispensational error, but, but still an error um, that we need to be addressing, I think. Um, yeah, so that's the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 is the most famous place to go. Um, New Testament evidence, though, actually, like I said, very little is, is said about the substance of the New Covenant in the New Testament. It's because we're, we're to get that from what came before. You know, we can't ignore the Old Testament. We see that Christ is the fulfillment of these things. And so we're to view Christ and the establishment of the New Covenant in light of the Old Right, um, Luke twenty two twenty, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, "This is what Jesus picked up and, and said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood.'" So here he is, he is um, ratifying the covenant with them. It's beginning here um, again in First Corinthians eleven twenty five when Paul um, talks about the Lord's Supper with the Corinthians. Second Corinthians three six who had made, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant so uh, n- not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life um, I could say more about this but the point I really would like to make is that when Paul looked at himself he saw himself as a minister of the new covenant the whole radical dispensational no- notion that the covenant or the kingdom was delayed somehow Paul's a minister of it, it it's obviously here and in force. I really think the book of Hebrews becomes interesting, and I I won't take the time to go into detail here, but uh, clearly the book of Hebrews portrays the the new covenant as in force. And and the writer of the Hebrews also emphasized the discontinuity um, between the old and the new. In Hebrews 8.8, we read, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So he's quoting from Jeremiah 31 and showing that, hey, this is... This is a present reality. The first is made obsolete um, and and is vanishing away. But in Hebrews 9, um, we're told that Jesus Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. Hebrews 9.15. He's the mediator of this covenant. That that is the question I asked um, one of my close Pado baptist friends 
so you're saying that the children are in the covenant. Are they united to Christ then? Do they have Christ as mediator? Are they under Christ? You know? Um, great question to ask. <laughs> yeah. So if we're to be consistent here, they're, 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 they're in the covenant. Then do they have Christ as their mediator? Are they, are they united to him? Um, are they under him? Right? And I suppose for them to be consistent, they would have to say, well, yes, but only externally so. It's a very inconsistent theological system, though. I think it would be more appropriate for us to say that, that no, actually, our children are born into this world united to Adam. Under right. Adam. They have Adam as their federal head, not Christ. Uh, they need to have Christ as mediator, as federal head. They need to be united to him, but they, they do not until they have faith. Uh, it seems to me that the book of Hebrews makes it quite clear that uh, it is Christ who is the mediator of this new covenant, and um, he he has atoned for the sins of all who are in it. Um, he, by his shed blood, has atoned uh, for all the sins, the sins of those who are under this new covenant. And it's kind of interesting because our Reformed Pado-Baptist brothers do, typically, if not always, believe in limited atonement. They believe that Christ, when he died, paid for the, the sins of the, the elect, elect, that he represented a particular group of people, limited and particular group of people. It seems to me very inconsistent then that they would want to say that it's possible to be under this new covenant, which he serves as the mediator of, right, right. and has atoned for the sins of those who belong to it. And well, yet, it's pretty confusing because you, being Christ being mediator, it, it involves all these other things that wouldn't assume salvation, right? Because if he's mediator, he's also, you know, interceding for us he's paid our you know paid atonement for us that's what it means for him to be mediator right right so that seems difficult to understand in the midst of if you're part of the covenant then you are you know under that grace and salvation that christ gives it's very interesting i I suppose what they do is they just maintain the uh, internal external uh idea all the way through I, i know that's what they do but it just doesn't seem to quite click the way that the Reformed Baptist version of covenant theology does. Can you speak to it all what what that means to be externally have Christ as your you know the mediator? Well, I I don't I can't visualize what okay, it looks that, like. That's what you I'm, know what I mean? That's, I, what that's what I'm trying to figure. You know, I don't see that concept that. in the Old or New Testaments, right. and I I can't really give an answer to it. Okay. Um, I don't know what that would look like right. <laughs> to be externally united to Christ or to have Christ as your mediator externally of this new covenant, but not internally. I, yeah, I, I just think it's a foreign concept, one that needs to be abandoned. So you could compare <laughs> Hebrews 8 and, and 10. Um, you know, th- there's an interesting article written by uh, James White, two of them actually. Um, it's contained in, in that book, um, Recovering a Covenantal Heritage. Recovering a Covenantal Heritage. It's put out by... Um, um, Reformed Baptist Academic Press, I think, and he, he does really a really nice job at comparing um, Hebrews eight and ten and addressing this issue of Christ as mediator of the new covenant. So I'd commend that to you if if you're interested in um, um, reading more on this. I need to conclude it. This has been a long episode already. I would really encourage you to look carefully at the London Baptist Confession. It's widely known that the biggest difference between the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a Reformed Presbyterian, Pado, well, not Presbyterian, but a Reformed Pado Baptist uh, document. Uh, the biggest difference between the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, it's widely known as on the issue of baptism and church government. Those are the obvious things. You put them side by side and you're like, yeah, clearly they had differing opinions on who should be baptized and how the right. church should be governed. What's not so obvious to see is that the skeletal structure of both of those confessions really is covenant theology. And it's there that perhaps the most significant difference between the two confessions is found in the way that we talk about uh, covenant theology. So in chapter seven of the London Baptist confession in paragraph two, uh, the new covenant is, is defined. Um, it, it, it is defined 
and that paragraph uh, speaks to what is promised to us and what is required of us under the new covenant. So read that. Chapter 8, it is interesting, shows what is required of the mediator of the new covenant, who is Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, And here, well, give me one second. Emmauscf.org backslash, what is it, Mike? Um, Is it? Or is it LBC? Come on, you don't even know your own navigation on your own website. I tell you what. (laughs) Chapter 7, paragraph 2. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them, what is required of us under the, the, the covenant of grace? Requiring of them faith in him. That's the thing that's required. Not that we do works, but that we have faith. In in um, in God and in the Christ, whom uh, He has sent, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Wow! So the new covenant is just pure grace. There are no stipulations. What is required? Belief. It's not even a work. It's just that you trust in the work of another, right? And it's pure a promise. And then in paragraph three. We see really the Reformed Baptist distinctive here that this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam. Do you notice the language here? That This covenant of grace was not ratified or begun with Adam, but it was revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, Genesis 3.15, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. You see that... The, 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 the covenant of grace was not fully discovered or completed until the, new, the inauguration of the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction, which, which was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. So this is a reference to the first thing I said about that pactum salutis, or the covenant of redemption. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in a state of innocency. To me, I I get excited about this stuff. It's beautifully stated. Okay. Um, No one has ever been saved through anything except the covenant of grace. Not Adam, not Abraham, not Moses. No one today. It's all covenant of grace. That's the only way to be saved. The saints who live before Christ look forward to it because they had the promises pointing forward to something yet to come. Those of us who live today look back to what Christ did to that decisive event on the cross as death, burial, and resurrection. So really we have something in common, right? Neither of us are are living at the time of the inauguration of the ratification of the, the new covenant. We're both having to look somewhere. They looked forward, we look back. They saw more dimly, we see with greater clarity because Christ has already come. So there is where the covenant is really defined in our confession, chapter 7. I just think chapter 8 is incredible because it is what describes the role of the covenant mediator who is Christ, Christ the mediator. And here it details for us what was required of him. Okay, so here's the question. And I'm I'm going to conclude with this, I guess. Is the new covenant a covenant of grace or the covenant of works? It's kind of a trick question. And here's why. For us, it is pure grace. There's nothing required of us except faith. We have to trust another. But for Christ, who is the mediator, it was all works. Mm. Right? Right. he earned salvation. He did what the first Adam failed to do. He kept God's law. He fulfilled all the promises of God. He went even to the cross and to the grave and rose again. It, it, was, all, it was all work for him. You know? The terms of the, the new covenant for Christ 
were one thing. The terms of the new covenant for us are another. For him, salvation had to be earned for himself and for all who are united to him, who belong to him, given to him by the Mm -hmm. Father. For for us, it's pure grace. We we can't do a, a thing to earn our right standing with God, we must simply trust in the work that Christ has accomplished um, right. has accomplished for us. Um, so that's why I'm a Baptist. <laughs> it's a long story, but there you go. Um, good. But I proudly uh, wear the the the, the badge uh, Reformed too, and and of course uh, we've discussed this before. When we say we're Reformed, we're, we're we're saying we're Reformed according to the Scriptures. We look to the Scriptures as our authority for truth and. Again, I do want to walk hand in hand, arm in arm with our Reformed Pado Baptist brothers because, man, we we see um, we see the world in very similar ways. Um, but we do have this one this one thing that distinguishes us one from another. Right. Well, there's there's further um, further resources you can explore that will be on the uh, the PDF for this episode. Um, but as well, like saying it again. Um, go check out the rest of this class. Um, so go to your web browser and type in emmauscf.org um, slash, so emmauscf.org slash essentials slash covenant dash theology, and that'll take you straight to the class. And uh, check out all the rest of those episodes to catch up and kind of get more detail on everything before this. So... Right. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening in. And if you have any questions, just uh, send us an email at staff at org. Mm-hmm.